welcome to Global Minima. I'm Kit, your producer, and Global Minima is the podcast that meets at the intersection of bits, watts, and dollars. Yeah, I mean, bits, watts, and dollars might be a great DJ name. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's my future. Um, and yeah, this is this is Jason. Uh, I'm the founder here at Sustainablist, and um, Definitely an energy data nerd, and here at Sustainablist, we're on a mission to help companies in the clean energy space utilize data to improve their processes. Uh, yep, and we might tell you a little more about that later, but right now, why don't you tell me about Marianne Piet, Jason? Yeah, so I first met Marianne when I was a PhD student at Berkeley, and she was the big boss of one of the parts of the project that I was working on. And so um, it's very nice to be able to interview her as a peer uh, now. Uh, so she runs the uh, Building Technology and Urban Systems Division and oversees uh, building research with the U.S. Department of Energy and over 25 other R&D sponsors. Marianne is the director of the Demand Response Research Center, and her work involves developing and evaluating new technology and building components, controls, operations, simulations, and whole building and electric late soap analysis and behavior evaluation. And so if you are into data and you're into energy, I think you're in for a real treat. Here is Marianne Piet being interviewed on Global Minima. Today, uh, we're joined by Marianne Piet. Marianne is a scientific division director Commercial Building Systems Group, Whole Building Systems Department, Flex Lab. Marion, are you are you the scientific division director of all of these, or is are, are there just so many titles on your bio here? Do you want me to describe? Yeah, if you them? would just like describe. Um, let's start by describing who you are. I'm going to let you do that because sure. there, there's a lot here. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, my name is Marianne Piet, and I'm a division director of the Building Technology and Urban Systems Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And that division has three different departments. And I'm in one of the departments, but I work across those departments. The departments are whole building systems, uh, building technologies, and building and industrial applications. And my own work is um, involving energy using technologies and buildings, as well as grid integration. And I also run something called the Demand Response Research Center. So I'm a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, as well as a division director. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I do remember getting the, the emails from you when I started my PhD uh, on the AutoDR project. Yeah. So <laughs> um, that was a while ago. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are now? Yeah, thanks for asking. I was very fortunate at UC Berkeley uh, to take a class from a professor named Art Rosenfeld. And I was actually an astrophysics major when I started at Berkeley, but I moved into physical sciences and chemistry and became more practical over time. And I took a class called the Physics of Energy Efficiency. And I've been at the lab ever since because I was very inspired by Dr. Rosenfeld's vision about the research that we could do to change the way we use energy in buildings and the opportunity to improve the national security 
by using energy efficiency to reduce our need to import foreign oil mm-hmm. and to d- develop technologies that were helping to reduce bills for customers and create a portfolio of research uh, that is still very active today. So I started at the lab in 1983, and I've been there um, a long time, and, and uh, I am now a senior scientist and a division director. I, I think that Art has gotten mentioned on uh, every podcast thus far, so uh, hopefully we can keep that going. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So w- when you started, what, what kind of tools did you have to collect and analyze and model data around the effectiveness to these different approaches uh, to buildings? And how did those evolve over your career? Yeah, when I was, uh, my first job at the lab was to call up um, building owners, a a lot of schools and office buildings, and collect data, uh, collect their utility bills um, from before and after retrofits. So some of the schools had put in new windows or put in more efficient heating and cooling systems. And we would take that data and put it into uh, a computer database. So we were actually very early using databases. We had to manually enter the data, unlike today where we can do an electronic data transfer, um, but we were manually entering energy data and then analyzing it. This was even before spreadsheets, um, wow. but we had Unix tools uh, and we were creating databases using programming uh, the uh, building type and the square footage and the dates and um, creating energy use intensities before and after the retrofits and looking at the cost effectiveness, the simple payback, uh, and demonstrating that these data were real. Um, and we had very simple online tools um, in something called the Building Energy Use Compilation and Analysis, or BICA. And we had BICA for new buildings and for existing buildings and for both commercial and residential buildings. That's very different than how it is uh, today. Yeah, today we have the building performance database uh, that Paul Matthew at LBL runs for the DOE. And we have um, over a million buildings in that database of both commercial and residential. And we have energy use data um, that's in a user interface to allow you to query and understand how the buildings uh, perform compared to others. So we have a lot of different tools now, and and this was before the internet. So we were collecting the data and putting it into a database and then running reports and then writing reports and then mailing those reports around. Um, We didn't really have PDFs back then. But we we were using TROF, which was a Unix word processor. Um, So it's before Word. That, yeah, that that jives with what... We've heard, um, I, was, I was talking to somebody about the original uh, ASHRAE energy predictor competition where they mailed people the, the data files on floppy drives. Yeah. So The great predictor shootout, that was yeah. called. Yeah. yeah they, they just did one of those recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what are the current research projects that, that you're working on that you're really excited about? And I, and I personally want to know if anything cool is going on at FlexLab. So uh, one of the biggest changes that's happened in the last few years is the idea of moving away from just how much energy a building uses to when it uses energy. And energy efficiency is often getting the most services out of every kilowatt hour. We still care a lot about that, but we're also doing more work on 
um, the electric load shape of a building mm -hmm. and how to make that load shape flexible so that we can use more energy when the renewables are more available and less when they're not and have the demands of the building match the demand of the renewables, which makes the overall system a lower carbon cleaner system. And we are using something called FlexLab, a building with a set of side-by-side -side room scale test beds that are for commercial buildings. And we'll configure one with energy efficient or load flexible technologies, and we'll configure the other as some kind of baseline. And we're starting to test how to use the mass of the building to change the electric load shape and how the, that mass is influenced by the window or adding mass or the efficiency of the HVAC system. So we look at the watts per square foot uh, of the hourly loads and how to change them dynamically. And we want to change them and not use more energy. So when we pre-cool, uh, we want to sort of store the cooling energy and then set the temperature up later in the afternoon. And we're configuring FlexLab to be able to help us understand whether the hourly load shape from controlling a building, which would be the lights and the plug loads and the heating and cooling with the real windows, um, whether we can actually move the load around in the daytime and still provide the same kind of comfort and the same kind of lighting conditions uh, and the same kind of ventilation um, with using the mass of the building as some kind of storage that's inherent in the building. So that's one of the things that we're configuring for this year. And one of the themes of that work is that we're also moving beyond how a widget performs, just a light bulb or a, a ventilation system or a window, to integrated systems. And that's one of the most important things we're doing is creating packages of retrofits um, that can help reduce energy and be grid interactive so they can actually have this load flexibility um, if you use a price signal or some kind of other grid signal. Uh, and then the last one I want to mention is something called building integrated photovoltaics. Mm -hmm. And recently in FlexLab, we had a window that had PV in the window itself. So two pieces of glass with a photovoltaic in the middle. And we tested it as both a window. So we tested the solar heat gain coefficient and the R value. And then what was it like in the room with that window? And it actually reduced the cooling load because it kind of shaded the window. So we were collecting electricity with that window as well as using that window. Um, and we have a, one of the FlexLab test cells. It actually rotates so we could see how that window would perform at different seasons, different times of the year, both as a window and as a photovoltaic um, electric uh, generation system. Yeah, I think that's my, my favorite part about FlexLab. If, if I'm not mistaken, it's entirely modular. Like The whole building can be broken down to different pieces, uh, and it rotates around, so you can actually rotate the whole building. Exactly. Yeah, um, we, we talked a lot about that uh, when, when I was there. Um, so uh, how did that window perform? Are we? Do you think we're close on, on uh, uh, building integrated photovoltaics? The... Window performed very well. Uh, it actually sort of was like having an internal shade in the window. And so you could still have uh, the view that, that actually FlexLab has, a beautiful view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, but the window is expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest challenges is how to fabricate these windows. And they're expensive to install. Um, so we're trying to work with the, the creator, the, the company developing them, and try to bring those costs down. That's a lot of uh, sort of a supply chain issue, whether 
you can uh, procure the glass and do the do the manufacturing and and whether the volume will increase so that they can hit those margins in producing a window like that. So we're not seeing them um, in large scale, but I think we hope in the near future we can bring the cost down and and get those kinds of windows more common in in office buildings. You could imagine what cities would be like if they had those in a lot of the the tall skyscrapers that exist today in cities. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges with with solar is that the surface area on those big skyscrapers um, makes it so that you can't stick enough solar on there to make it relevant to exactly. how much the building is consuming. It's small roof footprint. Hey, this is Jason. If you're feeling inspired by what you're hearing today, I'd like to point out a way that you can make a difference. Years ago, I started a fellowship at UC Berkeley named after my late friend, Art Rosenfeld, who was commonly known as the grandfather of energy efficiency. The recipients of this fellowship are on the cutting edge of energy efficiency research. Our goal is to build an endowment that can support three full-time graduate students. Currently, the endowment provides one student with a stipend of about $7,500 a year to support their research in the field of energy efficiency. You can donate to this fellowship by Googling Rosenfeld Award at Berkeley or by going to tinyurl.com slash Rosenfeld Award. So... You mentioned grid after interactive buildings. We've we've seen a lot of movement towards smart cities and grid interactive buildings in recent days. We've been getting asked a lot about this, um, and um, I'm curious what your view on uh, what are the opportunities and challenges associated with integrating smart devices and communications in our buildings uh, in order to power this uh, flexible future grid. Yeah, so there's I think two key ones that are uh, of interest in research, but as well as policy and market analysis. And one is that we have to develop common communications technologies and make that low cost to configure that interoperability. And that's one of the big problems is most buildings, the building's not hooked up to the internet and the control system is kind of a standalone system. And a lot of buildings have older controls, so they don't really have the resolution um, and the ability to integrate with some sort of grid signal. So that's a topic of, of a lot of research in many places. Once they get the signal, um, what is the sequence of operations? What, is, what do they do with that signal? And some thermostats can receive those signals, um, but there's a need to do this at much larger scale. Not everybody has a smart thermostat, and a lot of the office buildings and schools and things have older controls that aren't really ready to receive a signal. Then the other thing is making sure that the building owner sees the energy savings or cost savings rather on their, on their bill so that they have some economic incentives. And that's a little bit tricky because there's value to the electric utility and there's value to the wholesale market and there's value to planning of the grid. So we're still working on the way to quantify that value and to make sure that the tariffs or the programs that the person is signing up to participate in are going to be there for a few years. So they have enough years so that those savings persist and they can get a payback on that technology. A lot of the grid interactive technologies are installed for a year or two and the programs change and they don't have an opportunity to make a long-term investment in the controls to get the building to be interacting with the grid. So we need kind of a commitment to these programs uh, to help the building owners uh, see the savings from investing in that technology. 
we have a lot of conversations with efficiency implementers, the Mm -hmm. classic efficiency implementers. And a lot of them are starting to ask about how do you optimize against all those constraints? Like, where are you putting the load? Where are you putting the batteries? Where are you putting the devices? You know, so it's a, it's a multi-objective optimization with a lot of factors. Exactly. And they're, they're really curious about that. And so Absolutely. How, how do you feel about the cybersecurity in, in, in those cases? Like, is that something you're looking at too? Absolutely. So we, when we develop those kind of control and communication technologies, and, and one of them, for example, is called OpenADR, uh, that technology has encryption and authentication and a key structure that's similar to what you'll have in modern banking internet systems so that it's a secure uh, communication between one building and another. And that, that's been a good thing for large buildings where they're receiving the signal locally and they have all this cyber, they follow the national standards on cybersecurity. Um, in some of the cloud systems, it's less clear um, and there's a concern as you have a system that's from the cloud to the building or a, a, say your dishwasher, um, you may not have the same encryption and authentication. So uh, there's still work to be done on the cybersecurity of some of these devices. So it's not a, something that's fully solved. Um, and in some sectors of the market, the cybersecurity is stronger than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to dig in a little bit, um, like as we push towards these smart cities, the, the, the control systems need to be able to speak to each other and be augmented yeah. easily. And I'm curious what's happening in the space. What's the current research point to um, to allow these to communicate safely, effectively, and of course, securely? Yeah, so it's a. I'm, I'm happy to say there's a there's a large new investment from the U.S. Department of Energy on interoperability, and as you know, control systems in the past have been proprietary, and we're getting better at being able to use the control systems to trend log all the performance data. Uh, I know you have experience with that directly, um, so there's a there's work to try to understand. You know, you can build these cybersecurity systems, but they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So there's research to try to look at how do we deploy them at scale and where are what are the business partnerships with the kind of vendors that are out there today uh, that, are, that can make an investment in this, this, these grid signaling systems and, and know that the utility is going to have the program, like I said, um, but also know that the customer is going to accept the technology and we understand a little bit about how often is it changing the electric loads. And that's a, that's a big issue, too. Is this something we're doing every day with a dynamic price? Or is this something we're just doing on the 10 hottest days of the year? And I, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work on that. And is this something that uh, needs to continuously be listening? Can we send an FM signal? Or is it the Internet? Uh, so there's a lot of work on um, what those signals should look like, uh, how to reflect the carbon in the market. And how often the devices need to be listening to those signals, and again, the cybersecurity, like you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that that makes total sense. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of FM activation, but I suppose that there's probably room in the spectrum for uh, that kind of work. Yeah, we've done a little bit of the, that in the past, is partnering with radio stations and broadcasting prices. Mm-hmm. And th- not everybody has Wi-Fi in their homes or internet. So um, also, once you have a customer's internet and you're using that as a communication signal, something could go wrong with their service provider. Or it could be down, and it might be down at, a, at an important time. 
So they might change their Wi-Fi password. Yeah, and and you know, still in some areas, twenty percent of the homes don't have the internet in some of the low-income, disadvantaged communities. So it's not every home that has it, and and we want to make sure that we can get uh, equitable prices to some of the communities that don't have the the same investment in their homes. You know, I was speaking to somebody about uh, Project Chip yesterday, Mm -hmm. uh, which is apparently a consortium effort by a few big uh, companies to make a uh, interactive smart device protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I I think that this is is popping up in in multiple places. Um, So kind of just to dig in on what the goal is here, you know, the, the big goal of smart buildings in a lot of ways is carbon reduction. Yes. Um, how do we use these buildings to, to lower carbon footprints? How can we use intelligent aspects that are designed to make more integrated systems for CO2 reduction? Yeah. So I think there's, there's three ways. First, when you use all the efficiency you have, then you don't need to get as much electricity into that building. And in general, we're moving towards electrification. We still use natural gas, but I think we should talk mostly about all electric buildings because that's becoming the trend in the policy analysis. Um, and over time, new buildings are gonna tend to be all electric here, especially here in California, but in other parts of the world as well. So we wanna use every kilowatt hour as efficiently as we can. That reduces carbon. The second thing we wanna do is when we can have a local uh, source, um, we might have our own photovoltaics and our own battery. And so we can run the building maybe in an islanded way and not even pull from the grid or just pull from the grid sometime. Um, And once we pull from the grid, uh, we wanna pull at times when it's cleanest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some people are starting to put in their own batteries with their photovoltaics and use less electricity during the time when the grid is more expensive. In general, the wholesale prices are reflective of carbon. So when the price is high, that tends to be uh, the dirty time. And when the price is lower, that tends to be the time when there's a lot of solar and wind or mostly solar. Um, So we can actually try to shift our load, like I was saying earlier, to different times of the day. So we might pre-cool the building um, between 11 and 3 Uh, and then ride through the high price time, which might be five to nine. And that lowers the carbon footprint of the building because the hourly electricity that that building is consuming is cleaner than a building that won't be interacting with the grid. Because the building, depending on if it's an office building or a home, Mm -hmm. it has different shapes. Um, So we basically want to try to make the building and make the supply and the demand more integrated and make the electric load shapes. So that's true um, with buildings. It's also true with industrial systems, with bottling, with uh, breweries, uh, with wineries. Um, So whether you're having your local storage and supply or from the grid, um, making that load more flexible so we can can make sure we're using the cleanest electricity that we can um, is going to go a long way towards reaching our goals for uh, energy efficiency and low carbon buildings. Yeah, and just you know, two follow-up questions on that. Um, you, you spoke about islanding buildings selectively, um, and I'm wondering, you know, what's what's being done on the technical challenges there that you know of? Because actually, taking something on and off the grid can 
requires some fancy equipment in some cases. Right. So I think they have kind of a, I'm actually don't know the exact word, but they have a, 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 a cutout system um, that allows the building to, when it's off grid, um, you can, you can actually use the photovoltaics live. And then when it gets back connected to the grid, we have to make sure that the local uh, PG&E crew or, or electric crew that's on site um, is able to bring the grid up safely and there's not power flowing both ways. So that has to be a, a, a inverter design that um, allows the integration with bringing the grid back on. Uh, another thing is direct current power. We currently use AC power, alternating current for homes and buildings. But as we have more photovoltaics behind the meter, we may want to use a direct current technology. Mm-hmm. And we're doing a lot on DC lighting, DC motors, um, DC networks, and motor control centers that actually can switch between AC and DC. So if you have an, an electric vehicle and a photovoltaic and a battery and uh, DC loads, you're going to save about 10% of your total energy as opposed to somebody who's having to switch the power from DC back to AC to power some of the loads in their homes. So we might find more DC appliances, uh, DC lights, as I said, and, and other kind of DC devices in, in buildings in the future. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I, I know that the CPUC has a pretty active smart inverter working group right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get to attend as many meetings as I want, but mm-hmm. I see interesting emails coming through. Right. And you also mentioned manufacturing and and kind of flexible factories. And as Mm -hmm. someone who's kind of a nerd about manufacturing as well as efficiency, right? Are you seeing, are you seeing situations where like whole plants are becoming flexible? Is it down at the individual manufacturing cells? Is that not an area you have much detail on? Well, the, um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, One of the largest participants in some of the automated DR projects that we worked on were compressed air facilities. And compressed air facilities have a fair amount of flexibility and very large loads. Some of, some of the loads that we were automatically reducing were as much as 10 megawatts, 10 wow. megawatt customers that, that had some flexibility. So they, they can make a lot of money by um, ramping up their production or ramping it down as needed. Uh, another example is agricultural pumping and municipal wastewater pumping um, and the state water project overall. So. Pumping is a, is a load that um, might be flexible, um, and over the day, they can run the pumps at certain times and curtail them at others. And agricultural will look at, obviously, how much rain uh, there is and how much water is needed, and they may be on a multi-day cycle um, on uh, agricultural pumping. So we're finding agricultural loads, um, some, some food processing, um, bottling, I've heard the example of, you know, sometimes when uh, there's a harvest season, you can't stop the harvesting of the tomatoes. But once you freeze the tomatoes, you have a lot of flexibility in turning those tomatoes into ketchup. So literally they they can bottle the ketchup on a very flexible schedule, um, although the harvest has to happen at a certain time. So some some products are flexible. And uh, we've certainly heard about um, aluminum is the historic uh, very active uh, load that is common in the Midwest that Alcoa was doing a lot of work with mm-hmm. uh, flexibility of, of, of aluminum smelting. But 
um, that's obviously not in many parts of the country don't have loads like that. Yeah, I think that uh, my advisor, Paul Wright, was involved with some of that uh, Mm -hmm. aluminum flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So I heard I heard things about it around the periphery. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as these cities uh, um, are now moving towards this smart building, smart grid, they're, they're putting forth proposals to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, one of the things we're starting to see are these open data benchmarking laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, from your view, how has this changed the policy landscape and how has it driven research? And then does like, how does this help with, with carbon feedback? Yeah, uh, there are um, several dozen cities in the United States that have disclosure laws and they require large buildings to make their annual energy use public. So that's oriented around the total energy use per square foot um, and they will require if the energy use intensity or the energy per square foot is so high, they'll require the building to undergo some kind of commissioning or retrofits to bring the energy use intensity down. Um, Some of the most uh, aggressive cities are New York and Seattle and San Francisco. Um, New York is actually going to start introducing fines uh, if the energy use is too high in a building. And so that's a very aggressive policy to actually have a financial penalty. So that should give the building owners an incentive to get involved and do something in the building. And those benchmarks in New York are actually carbon-based. They're not energy-based. So they do include... Uh, the gas and the electricity, um, but they are using what's called kind of an annual energy, um, not this hourly load shape, because they're just using an average uh, gr- greenhouse gases or CO2 per kilowatt hour. So over time, we're going to see more of that hourly benchmarking important in, in uh, some areas of the country where, where we have a lot of renewables. Uh, but it's certainly very good for the um, contractors that are doing those kinds of retrofits, commissioning firms, retrofit firms, and creating a, a vibrant community of uh, engineering companies that know to, how to go in and do those retrofits. So that's an exciting thing for us to be working with existing buildings because a lot of the building code work is oriented towards new buildings. Um, but this kind of work is really saying, how do we fix the buildings that we have? And that's that's a really important thing for cities is to make sure that uh, the leased, the leases, the, so a lot of those buildings are leasing out office space. Those leases could be green leases. Um, and that's also what we find is the buildings that have made the investment in the energy efficiency have better market value. And that's been demonstrated from the lead scores that the buildings actually do have better market value. And again, Paul Matthew at LBL has done work on uh, the value, how, how the, the value of the energy efficiency might even in, influence the uh, the mortgage rate and less defaults on mortgages for more energy efficient buildings. Interesting. Um, and do you think that's a function of who can afford energy efficient buildings or is it uh, a function of the energy savings? Well, most of these building uh, disclosure laws are oriented towards office buildings. So it does tend to be the real estate investment trusts and maybe owner-occupied buildings. So it's not really the homeowner or the right. apartment buildings yet. Um, we, we may start to see those in the multifamily. I'm less familiar with that sector and using these kinds of requirements. Um, we're seeing this mostly in the office buildings. Got it, yeah. Um, 
that's interesting that the the benchmarking is yearly because um, something that we're seeing now is people are aggregating and trading load shapes in the electric vehicle space. Mm, um, yes, and and so I would not be surprising to me if that got tied into the benchmarking at some point in the near future because. Uh, as we discussed before, greater active buildings require that all these systems work together. That's right. Yeah. I've heard that in China, when they build a new office building, the electric power requirements have to be increased by 15% to include new electric vehicle charging. That's we haven't, interesting. Yeah, we haven't done that yet. I haven't heard about that, of, of actually changing the sizing of the electric circuits to accommodate the EVs. I feel like Amory would have something to say about increasing the size of things uh, yeah. before decreasing the yeah. size of something else. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, those were the questions I had prepared. Um, I, I, something occurred to me as, as we, were, we were going along. I'm, I'm wondering, since we have a little bit more time, um, what, you're, like, what you're seeing in the lab right now that uh -huh. you're really excited about getting uh -huh. out into the real world. Like what, what can we be excited about going from research to implementation in the near future? Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say a few things. Um, we talked about cities, but we didn't really talk about urban heat islands. Yeah. And one of the things that's happening is as the climate gets hotter, we're trying to understand how hot cities are going to get. So we have a, a number of interesting projects around that topic. Um, we've done research for years that's resulted in technology requirements for roofs related to cool roof te technologies to actually reduce the urban heat island. And we're actually trying now to understand how the HVAC systems might be dumping heat on a, in a heat event into the local uh, climate. So the cooling towers, the exhaust air. Um, so how are the building and, the, and these heat islands interacting? And that's a new area of research. Um, so we're trying to model cities in new ways. And we're trying to understand um, the trees, the role of trees, the role of surfaces, and the role of that HVAC system. Um, and part of that is around this concept of resilience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the, in the resilience concept, if there's an extreme heat day, um, how does the building perform? And even if there's a power outage, Imagine there's a power outage at the same time as an extreme heat event. What does that mean for health and safety? And so we're actually trying to develop metrics around characterizing a building's performance when the electricity's off. And, and of course, there's a term called passive survivability. Uh, so we're trying to develop technologies. Actually, there's one technology that's been thought about where we actually change the properties of the roof. So in the winter, it absorbs heat and in the summer, it reflects heat, mm -hmm. and uh, you could imagine that in the future, the buildings are actually adapting, and they change, or some the, the windows may change during these extreme events. Yeah. Um, so we're excited about some of that technology and understanding the relationship between the energy performance of the building and the health impacts as well. Interesting. Yeah, that, that just reminded me, I saw recently a, um, uh, I think it was a, uh, Saul Griffith, Griffith from Other Lab posted about a fabric that will uh, change shape and change thickness in, in whether it's hot or cold. 
Um, and so I wonder wow. if, if there could be something like that that's used for a roofing material, as an example. Right. Yeah. Right. Super interesting. Okay. Well, um, I think that uh, we covered a lot of a lot of ground uh, in in a relatively short period of time. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Anything on your mind? Well, I think uh, the last thing I'll talk about is just machine learning and AI. That's, of course, a hot topic these days. Um, and we're able to collect data at scales that we weren't able to do uh, 10 years ago. And so that, that bodes well for fault diagnostics in buildings, model predictive control. And model predictive control is this idea where you take the set points, uh, the, the supply air temperature, the, the chill water supply temperature, the return air, and you, you control them as a system. And the electricity use of the building is part of the sequence of the operations. So this model predictive control technology is a really important thing for grid integration as well as energy efficiency. And it still takes PhD students to write these codes. But with machine learning and AI, we're going to be able to configure models and run the building with this multi-objective optimization that we talked about. And that's another very exciting area uh, that we're seeing strong progress and hope to accelerate that technology to the market. That is exactly what we hope to do. And part of the reason that we're trying to spread the word with this podcast. So I appreciate, I appreciate that thought. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. I really, really have enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I think that uh, our listeners will really enjoy this and I appreciate all of your inputs. Thanks so much. All right, Global Minimal listeners, that's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast services like iTunes or Spotify. We've got lots of really great interviews coming up. And so for those of you interested in this intersection of bits, watts, and dollars, stay tuned, tell your friends about us, and we'll see you next time.